everybody, this is David Dwight, Senior Pastor at Hope Church RVA, and you're listening to the Hope Sermons Podcast. I'm excited about our current series called More Than Words, a 90-day overview of the entire Bible. Thanks for joining us as we learn more about God, ourselves, and how He's redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Good to see you. We're glad you're here. Good morning to you if you're joining us online. We're glad you're tuning in and connecting with us. So, yeah, we're starting this journey here, 90 days through the Bible. And Sunday mornings are going to be kind of a blitz of an overview. And we're going to be kind of moving through different sections. There's no way to cover every bit of it. You can come Sunday nights if you'd like to get a little bit more of kind of a, let's call it behind the scenes or sort of acoustic unplugged teaching version. I also want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible and you would like to have one, we have copies of Bibles at our Connect desk, and we would be happy to give you one. You can make a donation if you want, but you don't have to. They've been made available for this series by somebody who really had a heart for wanting to offer Bibles to people who might want one. So you're welcome to go pick one up there. If you already have 11 and you go there and take a freebie, then that's between you and God. You can work that out. All right, so you've probably heard this, but I wanted to double check. Like, is this just folklore or is it real? The Bible is the most read book in world history, right? You probably heard it. So I did a little bit of looking and all indicators seem to confirm that that's true. And so one little statistic just had the last 50 years covering book sales in the last 50 years. Okay, number one was the Bible, 3.9 billion in the last 50 years. That's like half the number of the population of people on the earth, 3.9 billion. Okay, I wonder if you could guess number two. I bet you're going to, I would not have guessed this one. A little hint is, my guess is the sales had a little help from the Chinese government. It's quotations from Mao Zedong. That's number two at 820 million. Okay. So the Bible's like five times that. Number three, you want to hazard a guess? She made a lot of money on this. Harry Potter, you got it. 400 million. That's a lot. Okay, everybody's like, huh, I wonder how much she gets for each copy. That'd be like three, Dr. Okay. 1,500 years is the time span that the Bible is compiled from the earliest literature that we have in the Bible, chronologically the oldest, like the oldest part of it put to paper is the book of Job. Even though Genesis speaks of the beginnings, the dating of when we have the manuscripts, Job is the oldest. And then it goes all the way through. Revelation, about 1,500 years, 40 different writers. So there are different people writing. It's all men in this case inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I heard a phrase a while ago that I really liked. Because when you read the Bible, you're going to see consistent threads that run through the entirety of it, which has always been one of the remarkable veracities of the Bible to me. You read prophecies in Genesis. You see them happen in the Gospels, this kind of thing. Okay, but it's not all written by one man, but it is all written by one mind meaning the Holy Spirit has inspired the writers. The Bible has a lot of different genres in it. There's history, there's poetry, 
There's wisdom literature, there's instruction, there are letters. It's different. It's different than any other book. It's different than anything else out there in literature. It's different. And you might hear that and say, like, thanks a lot. That's helpful. No, no, no. It's a big deal. You got to know that. It's different. To understand it, to engage it, and to kind of come to an accurate place with it, it's different. It's inspired by God. It's given to us from God. That's a huge difference because the other literature that we have is written by human beings. It's from a human perspective. This is written from God's perspective. <clears throat> little example, Isaiah 55 says it this way. My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So just as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so is my word, God's saying, my thoughts, my ways. In other words, we should expect to hear stuff that we don't hear in other places. We should expect to hear stuff that's different than what we hear in a surrounding secular culture because the norms and the starting places are different. And we'll try to get into that a bit. <clears throat> the best way I could give you like the most macro of all ways to describe it is the Bible is about a good God who loves his creation and how he has made us and redeemed us. That's really the biggest way I could describe it. All right, so today... We're going to take a big picture tour through the book of Genesis. This is like, if this was a play, it would be like a four-act play. It would be like a play in four acts. It's going to be creation, personhood, temptation, and redemption. Five or six minutes to each act. No intermission, though. And then we will move through the different sections. Eugene Peterson said this about the Bible. We look in a mirror to see what we look like physically and outwardly. We can go to a psychiatrist to see what we look like emotionally and inwardly. But we go to the Bible to see what we look like in relationship with God. In the mirror of Scripture, we're faced with the person created by God, alienated from God, and sought out by God. So let me say a word of prayer as we embark on this journey. Father in heaven, we are here today at the beginning of this journey. We sort of feel like we are just about ready to untie the ropes from the boat to the dock and take this journey of reading through the entirety of the scriptures culminating in the victory of Easter. Lord, in the room, we come from different places. We have a different sense of scripture. Some of us are very familiar with it. Some of us have not known it. We pray, Lord, that you will speak into our hearts and our lives and our minds. Help us with those things we don't understand, Holy Spirit. Help us find you, particularly in places where we read it and we think, I don't like that. And help us to find that your words are for our flourishing. And help us to trust you as we take this journey, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <clears throat> okay, ready? Genesis 1-1, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a statement that just bursts forth. It's like the curtain on creation opens up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does it mean? 
It means God is first and God is the center of all of it. God first, God central. God is the first and God is the center. Now you might think, duh, but no, that's not the way many of us see life. Many of us see life as we are first and we are central. So this opening sentence, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Dan, water bottle. In the beginning, Dan said, do you want me to give you your water bottle? I said, no, I don't think I'm going to need it. Yes, I think I'm going to need it. <clears throat> in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so this is different. God first, God central. This is like the Copernican Revolution in the 16th century. Maybe you remember this from like high school science. The Copernican Revolution was Nicholas Copernicus, who was an astronomer, who basically discovered that the way we had always been seeing life was not actually the way it is. Up until his time, everything in the world of astronomy was the earth was the center of all of it, and everything revolved around the earth. AKA, we're central, and everything revolves around us. Copernicus was the one who began to realize that's not the way our galaxy works, not the way our solar system works. Actually, the sun is the center, and everything revolves around the sun. That was called the Copernican Revolution, a massive switch from the orientation by which we understand and see ourselves. Hey, we thought the earth was central and the whole centerpiece of the whole story. I'll come to find that it switched and that the sun is the center and everything revolves around it. So the Bible bursts forth on the scene and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you know that when it says in the beginning, that's not the beginning of God. That's the beginning of creation. That's the beginning of what God has made. What we understand is that God himself never had a beginning and never has an end. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always lived and existed in perfect relationship of mutual love, edification, and support. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they've always lived that way. At a point that we would say at a point in time, God creates the heavens and the earth. So people ask, like, what was he doing before he created the heavens and the earth? That's a good question. That's like, you've heard me say it before, that's like a little kid who once they begin to get old enough, they start realizing, hey, I think my parents were alive before I got here. <laughs> and the way we are, self-centric, the little kid thinks, what kind of life could they have had before I got here? Like, did you even have a life before I got here? Yes, we had a life before you got here. We were spontaneous and well-rested before you got here. <laughs> but you understand, we see it that way. So God has always existed, and that at a certain time, God created the heavens and the earth. What was God doing before that? Living in the perfect unity and the love of the Trinity. And so we see this picture that he creates the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of it. That has important implications. You know what it means if you're the creator of it? It means you're over it because anything that you create is smaller than you. You saw from the bumper video, like we're looking at pieces of artwork. When an artist creates a painting, one painting is just one small thing among lots and lots and lots of stuff that that artist could create. It's one small little snippet expression of the artist's capacity. And so, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, this is one small little snippet. 
In relative size and scope, we are so small compared to the capacity of who God is, like an artist who creates one painting. So God is over it. Secondly, like an artist who creates art, the artist owns it. It belongs to the artist unless or until the artist sells it, sells the ownership right to it. But this is why we have like all kinds of copyright laws, right? <clears throat> the artist owns it. Why? Because the artist created it. And that creatorship means ownership. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth means God is over it. It's a small little thing compared to his largeness, and he owns it. It belongs to him as creator. That's important to know. It belongs to him as creator. Psalm 24 says it this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded on the seas and established it on the waters. The earth belongs to God. Human beings belong to God. Sometimes I think it's sort of funny the way we do our economics. I get the way we do our economics, right? But if you think about real estate, like we moved a few years ago, we bought a new house and it's got some property with it. And the contract says, I own it. And I'm like, that's like a joke. I own it. Like, David, tell God you own it. Hey, God, I just want you to know, I own this little section of planet Earth. I think God would like smile, like looking down at the Tower of Babel, like, really? Really? Okay, in our economic system, I do, yes, the financial arrangements and the way it all works, I get that. But like, tell God you own part of the Earth. Okay, some of you think that's funny, some of you don't. <clears throat> Some of you are worried about your investment now. You're like, wait. <laughs> but it belongs to him, and so do human beings. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Human beings belong to God. They don't belong to us. They don't belong to any person. They belong to God. When I look at this and I think, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, let's talk about a very fundamental beginning point. God is the creator of it. Okay? There are going to be two massive ideas basically in our purview, which is either the world was created by, ma by random physical forces, Big Bang that had no designer, it was just random physical forces, or we have a creator God who has created it. I believed this for a long, long time, and now I believe this. And if you want to get really elemental about it, this is not logical for the way my brain works any longer. The order, the design, the exquisite nature from the largest of the cosmos to the smallest atomic structure. It's too orderly. It's too exquisite. It is too designed. It couldn't happen, quote, by accident. It just couldn't. Let me give you like a super simple example. Sometimes when I try to figure out big things, I go to really simple ideas. If you were going for a walk in the woods, like a hike in the woods, and you came to a little section that was cleared out, and you saw a circle of, say, 16 rocks about this big, and you saw a few pieces of wood in the center of it, you would know that was like a campfire, right? <clears throat> you would never look at those 16 rocks and think, gee whiz, look at how those fell into place just perfectly, like just randomly. You wouldn't. You would know somebody put them there. Why? It's too orderly for it to be random. <clears throat> you would know it. And 16 rocks in a circle, friends, is child's play compared to the magnitude of the order and the extent of the cosmos. You look at those 16 rocks, you're like, I know somebody, some intelligent designer put them there. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
He is the creator. He is the artist. And I think it's really helpful for us to keep in mind that God is an artist. Artists express themselves. And when artists express themselves, they reveal parts of themselves in what they create. So you could look at different painters. We'll go with painting. Some painters paint with dramatic, bright, bold colors. And that'll tell you something about that artist, who they are, what they're like, what their personality's like. Some people paint really like depressing, sad topics. That'll tell you what this person is like. It's going to tell you something about the artist. Every time you see a work of art, you're going to learn something about the artist because an artist is expressing. And when an artist expresses, they display aspects of who they are. And this is true, and it becomes very significant when we look at creation. Okay, that was creation, act one. We're going to move to personhood, act two. This is Genesis 1, 27 and 8. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I think one of the biggest struggles, one of the most significant existential questions that our world and particularly our country is struggling with today is the question, what does it mean to be a human being? This is a massive question, and we are struggling, struggling, struggling with this question. What does it mean to be a human being? According to what we have in the scriptures, it means to be made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. To be made in the image of God <clears throat> is to be made for a relationship. Remember, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed. God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, are by nature relational. They have always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect relationship. So one aspect of being made in God's image is to be made relational beings. Now, we can talk about introverts and extroverts and say some people love a party and some people like a quiet place and all that. That's fine, but at root, regardless of all that, we are made relational beings. I mean, historically, in criminal punishment, one of the highest versions is what? Solitary confinement. The greatest punishment is we're going to isolate you from being with any human beings. And this is agonizingly painful for the human experience. Because we're made in the image of God, and God has always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect relationship. It's one of many aspects of what it means to be made in God's image. Secondly, we are made with self-conscious capacity. We can evaluate ourselves. Other things in creation don't have that. Not the capacity to evaluate ourselves. We can look at our actions, our thoughts, our perspective, the way we're living our life. And we can ask questions of ourselves. Is this good? Is it right? Am I doing the right things? Am I on the right track? Other animals might have some self-consciousness, like your dog might cower if you yell at it, but a dog doesn't have the capacity to evaluate its life. So we have this self-conscious capacity. We also are made for eternity. This is part of what it be made, means to be made in God's image. God is eternal. To be made a human being is to be made for eternity. Ecclesiastes says it. God has put eternity in the hearts of human beings. From the time we're little kids, we're asking questions about eternity, heaven, what's it like? How does it work? If you're a parent, you know from the time you have little kids, you have become an amateur theologian because they're going to ask you so many God questions. 
and you got to figure out how to navigate the terrain with them. We're made eternal. We are made higher than the animals, and that's really important. We are given certain faculties and capabilities that make us different than animals. In other words, when we behave like animals, it's not a good thing. It's not a good day for us. It's not what was intended in God's loving design for human flourishing. And it's so important that we know that. And I, I get it. Part of learning the Bible over time is navigating this journey. Can I trust this? Can I trust what these words say? Can I trust the one who gives them to us? That's all part of engaging the Bible. It's part of this journey that we're on. I have, I've had my own journey of that over time. One of the things that we grow to learn is that God's word is intended for human flourishing. It's going to give us perspectives that are different than we're going to hear in a secular world that basically says human beings are first and human beings are highest. The Bible says God is first and God is highest. What it means to be made in God's image is to realize that our placement, the way we're designed, is to be made in a relationship with him, first and foremost. This is where we flourish. This is how our psyche finds wholeness. This is how our identity finds worth and value and wholeness. The way this has been said in Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul was speaking, and he's speaking about God, and he says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's part of what it means to be a human being made in his image. We live and move and have our being in him. When we separate ourselves from him, we do not have the life that comes from him that is the nature of how we're made. Said another way, it would be similar to a fish in the water. The water is that in which a fish lives and moves and has its being. Can a fish be alive outside of the water? It can for a short time, but it's not a pretty picture. And it's a gasping for breath and survival. When we are made in the image of God, we are made to find ourselves, find our identity, find our flourishing in a relationship with him. Eugene Peterson says also, Scripture can't be used. It's God's word calling us to a personal response. The word of God addresses us, calls us into being. The only appropriate response is a reverent answering. It's always more than we are. It's always previous to us, always over us. It makes me think like water to a fish. It's the larger and we're the smaller. And like the fish, we come alive when we're in relationship with the water. For us, that's in relationship with God. It also means that we are not self-defined. To be made in God's image means we're not self-defined. There is no such thing as a self-defined human being. We can't do it. We're not made that way. We are not lords of our own universe. We're created from the God who loves us, the creator artist who has designed us. So there is no such thing as a self-defined person. Anybody who tries to do it will struggle, 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 struggle. Okay, so a couple months ago, I was reading an article in the entertainment section of the Wall Street Journal, and it was an interview with a person who's a talent agent in Hollywood for actors and actresses. And this person was asked this question about how do you cast people for the right roles? And the person asking the question was asking this finely tuned question. And the agent who responded said, it's not all that sophisticated. I'm looking for whatever meat puppet fits the bill. 
I read, I was like, wait, what? He's calling the actors and actresses meat puppets. I'm just going to hire whatever meat puppet fits the bill. Like, hey, dude, it's not all so beautiful and flowery as you think it is. I'm just trying to find the meat puppet that works for the cast. And I thought, meat puppet? That's what so much of life will make us into if we are separated from who we are and the dignity of being made in the image of God. There's no such thing as a self-defined human being. We are always defined by other things. A, quote, self-defined human being is like a plant that's taken out of the soil. It's like a fish that's taken out of the water. It can live for a little bit, but it doesn't do well. It withers and struggles. You realize, right, everything we give ourselves to, every higher system, belief thing, every devotion that we give ourselves to will seek to make us in its image. We'll seek to make us in its image. And you're like, what does that mean? That sounds really philosophical. Let's get real simple about it. If NFL football is your thing, in time, you're going to start wearing NFL jerseys. Like you're going to be made in the image of the NFL and all its branding. If money and materialism is your thing, in time, you're going to dress money. You're going to drive money because it's going to make you in its image. If politics is your thing, it's going to make you in its image. We're living in a culture that says everything of what it means to be a human being is sex and sexuality. So sexualism will try to make you in its image. Every one of these things is a contortion and a reduction of what it means to be a human being made in God's image. Sex is a beautiful gift given to us by God. But to be told by a secular culture that everything is sex and sexualism and everything about your identity is sex and sexualism is a reduction of personhood. And that's why it matters that we talk about these things in God-edifying ways. Okay, so you're not an object. You're not a pawn. You're a human being made in the image of God. And then it says, male and female, he created them. You'll note that in this original rendering here, they are equal in value and stature. They are different in design and nature. And it is in that combination of things, equal in value, different in nature, that bringing them together, ready, reveals the glory of God. When a man and a woman are united in marriage with God at the center, imagine a little triangle like this. God is up here at the apex. Man and woman are here. Guess what you got? A little picture of a trinity in the union of the covenantal promise between the man and the woman. In other words, God's design here is displaying his glory. Okay, now, let's be clear quickly. You don't have to be married to be made in the image of God. You're not less valuable or less important if you're single, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, the most significant person in human history who is single. But if you are, the picture that the artist has created that reveals his creative nature and reveals his glory is that union of the man and the woman. Human beings made in his image are distinctly loved. Okay, ready? Act 3, temptation, Genesis 3, 6 and 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you mustn't touch it or you will die. 
You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. <clears throat> she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, moving quickly. Up to this time, Adam and Eve had only known good. They'd been living in this flourishing, beautiful goodness in the Garden of Eden with God. So enter the tempter who says, you can be like God. That's the first temptation. That is frequently the macro temptation under which all temptations fall. They are a temptation to be like God. You can be like God. The problem is when he says you can know good and evil, up to this time, they've only known good. So the temptation sounds, oh, that sounds expanding. That sounds enlightening. Not really. If you're wise to the temptation, it is solely on net an invitation to know evil. Because all they've known up to now is good. So when they're invited to know good and evil, the net on balance is solely now to be introduced to evil from this point forward. So what sounds like an expansion actually is a seduction and the awareness of evil is going to be our undoing. To have the awareness of God without the power of God is disastrous. In other words, God can know about all this good and evil because he's bigger than it. He can control. He has power over it. But to know all of this good and evil, the expansiveness of the darkness, the horrors of some of the evil in the world but be small like us without the power to defeat it, overwhelms us. And many of us know this. To have the awareness of God without the power of God is disastrous for us. The result is depression and anxiety and fear. We know way too much. We know way more than our emotions can handle and our capabilities can control. In 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul described Satan and said, no wonder Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He's always going to be whispering things that sound like enlightenment, that sound like expansiveness, that sound like growth. So I mentioned this a few weeks ago, right? I don't want to be cute, but I do want to call attention to this. So the idea of the picture of the traditional rendering artistically of this is like an apple tree, right? And the picture is that, that Eve took the apple and she took a bite out of it, right? So I remember years ago when the computers were first introduced, it was before they called them Apple, they were called Macintosh. That's a long time ago, right? And the logo of the company is what? An apple with a bite out of it. I thought to myself, surely I'm not the only one on the planet who sees the association between technology and the temptation to be like God, right? I can't be the only one who sees that. It's so obvious. Okay, so yeah, technology has lots of great stuff about it, so don't call me a caveman. But what I'm saying is we really have to be judicious about it. It opens us to stuff that is far beyond our emotional capacity to handle. And the depression and the anxiety that comes with it, you can like do the math and see it. One plus one equals two. Okay, so finally, redemption. Part A, because there are a bunch of parts to the redemptive rollout. Genesis 12, one through three. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. 
I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He finds this man, Abraham, who believes God, who trusts him in faith. In Genesis 15, we're told Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This belief, this trusting God in faith, is the way we enter into this relationship with God. And so God finds this man, Abram, and this faith that is Abraham's example is going to make him the father of the faith and the family through which God will reach all peoples on the world to, so to speak, reverse the curse and bring redemption and restored relationship and wholeness to all people in the world. So Abraham is this man of faith. He lives this life of faith. Notice the order in verse 1. Go from your country to a land I will show you. It's go and then I'll show. This is the essence of the life of faith. See, because what most of us do is we're like, no, you show me and then I'll decide if I'm going to go or not. That's not faith. That's management and control. But we're good at disguising it and calling it faith when we know it's not. The real life of faith is go. And as you go, I will show you. And I've learned, friends, over almost 40 years now as a Christian, that's how it works. I mean, that's accurate to to the way this works. We go and we trust and we stay close to him and he shows us as we go. We don't get the whole movie played out in front of us and then an option to say, would you like to choose to go in that direction? So Abraham is going to live a life of faith and he will be the father of the people who live a life of faith. Living a life of faith is a different way to live a human life. In the culture that we live in, everything around us says, control it, own it, plan it, solve it. And you don't need faith. You can manage it all. Here's what I've learned at my age. There is so much stuff that happens in our lives over which we had no control. And if I believe that I am the controller and the owner and the manager of it, the anxiety and the worry goes off the charts. Because there is so much stuff that happens that I can't control and manage. And so now I'm invited back to this life of faith, trusting my life into the rooted identity that I have in God and into the security that I have that he is the God who has the power over all things. Dallas Willard said, the Bible is, after all, God's gift to the world through his church, not to the scholars, It comes through the life of his people and it nourishes that life. Its purpose is practical, not academic. An intelligent, careful, intensive, but straightforward reading. That is one not governed by obscure and faddish theories or by a mindless orthodoxy is what it requires to direct us into life in God's kingdom. And that's what the Bible is going to do, friends. It's going to invite us into life in God's kingdom. Human beings endowed with the dignity and the love of our creator and made in his image. Let's pray. Father, we need you so much. We come to you with our lives in a confusing times, confusing world, confusing day and age. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts wherever we are, old or young, new or seasoned with our experience with the Bible, would you speak to us in fresh and beautiful ways? Invite us to the delight and the joy of life in a relationship with you.
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.